Good day, my Talos podcast friends. We have an exciting one for you today, one that many of you have probably heard about. Buddha is just launching on Telos, and we dig deep into the aid organizations around the world and what a big, impactful space this possibly is. And once you start to hear about the problems this is solving, it's such a natural place for blockchain to come in and really have a massive impact. And we get into all the details about where Havuta is coming in first, where they're entering the market, what their plan is, what they actually do, what the user experience is like, how big this problem is that they are solving, and everything about how Telos is helping fix that with blockchain solutions. So this is a really cool podcast. Um, we're sponsored by Scott at Hybrid.Games. Scott is our sound engineer. Big shout out. Thank you, Hybrid.Games. Go check that site out and see what he is building on ESIO software. And also, this is sponsored by a Telos Worker Proposal, doing big things over here uh, at the Telos podcast. So, big shout out to Telos community. Um, without further ado, I bring to you Paul de Havilland in a very interesting podcast here talking about Havuta. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain. The Talos Podcast. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to the Talos Podcast, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm doing good, Brendan. It's good to be here. Thanks for, thanks for asking me on. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited to hear about uh, Habuta and the project. What do you think the most interesting thing going on in Telos right now is? I, I'd like to be better informed uh, to be able to answer that. I, I know that there's a few things Douglas talked about that are currently under wraps, including to me. So I, I mm -hmm. couldn't talk about, um, uh, obviously, them. But one thing I did have a look at yesterday was the seeds project which i guess is still yet to launch um it, it uh, we got in touch with them actually yesterday because i i felt that there's while i don't entirely understand the the tokenomics that they're they're grappling with it looks like a, a incredibly interesting project and a, and a you know a great use of of blockchain and and, and tokenomics but um generally i if if you if you want me to be more general about it, Talos is Talos just seems to me to be this highly engaged, generous, and active community. That's in addition to that is also very professional and 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 run really efficiently. So uh, I know that's kind of an ongoing thing and not a new development, as you asked. But that so it looks like a, a fast growing and um, yeah, it strikes that nice balance between being approachable, uh, democratic, uh, uh, with good governance, but but also you know very professional and and well organized. So uh, those things to me are exciting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely speak to the speak to that balance because I've been watching EOSIO software since for for a while and and studying it pretty in depth, and it's so cool how. The Telos Foundation is a, a, a there's a structure there that is leading the way in the demo, but democratically, and then also with the worker proposals and these incentives for people like me who do this podcast to 
uh, get something in return. To it. I'm incentivized to to do the podcast. Um, there's all kinds of little pieces that are incentivized. So there's a decentralized kind of grassroots movement, but there's also this um, driving force that's 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 pushing through bigger projects like going into enterprise and things like that. So um, yeah, it's a really it's a very cool balance as you put it. I think. Uh, how did you find out about Telos? I mean that that's that's kind of a good question. Is how you came into the space or how you found it? Yeah, so I, I was working as a blockchain journalist and uh, came across the EOS was going through its first fork. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I actually was aware of it before it, before there was Telos, which I know isn't all that long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I began covering it and uh, Douglas was always quite active in correcting any false assertions that I had made and, and being part of the conversation. So um, I just became increasingly more you know, familiar with it and, and was covering it as really just a, as a journalist. And at some point, it seemed to me that what I was looking at here was, a, was, was a very much a blockchain 3.0, you know, a third generation blockchain project. That I mean, as you said, it's decentralized. There, there is a leadership, uh, a foundation that that drives stuff, but but it's decentralized. It's democratic. There are people. There's working proposals and people being incentivized to add value to the project. And it occurred to me at some point that this this uh, the Telos experiment was was very much something that that was worth pursuing and. Of incredible interest, and I think one of the better examples of how good uh, blockchain technology can can be for for society. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah that's that's how familiar I am with it. So, how did um, when did you start Havuta, and how did that kind of look bringing that over to Telos? Did you uh, start it and look actively for blockchains, or start it kind of with the intention of going on to Telos? We so we're we were registered about six months ago in in Geneva. Um, I, I would say that we're, we're about a year old in terms of when it, when we started talking about it and thinking about it. We were um, initially blockchain agnostic, to be honest. We uh, all we wanted was technology that worked and, and met our needs. So we discussed a lot. Of, of blockchains with a lot of people and, and, and between ourselves, me and uh, Fabian Dutas, co-founder. Um, and the choice for Talos in the end became reasonably easy and intuitive um, from a technology stand, fee structure, speed, scale, all that sort of stuff. Those things were necessary, but there was also this this uh, commitment to good government governance and um, you know you know, the, uh, the the egalitarian ethos, if I can say it like that, um, and which which has actually played out since I told Douglas that we're we're using Talos. The enthusiasm that that we've got from the communities has been. Um, we didn't quite expect it, to be honest. It's been really pleasing um, that they want they want projects like ours on their platform. So, uh, yeah, uh, it, 
it, we definitely wanted to, we made the decision after going through all the, you know, Ethereum, Hyperledger, et cetera, that, that we, EOSIO would be the operating system we wanted to use and, and Telos was, was the, the best one for us for all those reasons. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I think we've made the right decision, you know, it, it's, it's, it's been, um, I think it works. Yeah. It works and it, it's a welcoming community. Mm-hmm. So can you tell people what Havuta is? What's kind of the North Star and what are you guys planning on doing? Yeah, so um, Havuta is a tool that NGLs can use to uh, basically measure impact data, collect impact data. So what we found was that a lot of NGOs, um, so an NGO, a well-heeled, a multinational NGO that's supported by, you know, the big donor organizations, Gates Foundation, Global Fund, World Bank, all that stuff. They, they will spend between 5 and 8% on impact evaluation. And an NGO Some, is, a, is a, tell people what NGO is. A, a non-governmental organization. So um, a non-profit, okay. people who, who work in developing countries, um, yeah, they spend between five, five to eight percent on uh, impact evaluation, usually by mandate, um, if they're getting donor money. And what we found was that one of the problems that they faced was that they weren't able to measure their impact over a long term, over a longer term period of time. So the uh, you know, and the ILO spoke a lot about this. An NGO will will have an intervention, so a program. They'll, they'll go to a community, they'll deliver a program to that community, and they'll have a pretty good idea. They'll, they'll, they'll do a survey, a baseline survey at the beginning, and then a survey at the end of the beneficiaries of the program, what they learned, what, what they got out of it, how, you know, if, if their lives have changed in what way. And that's it. Uh, they don't know how long those impacts will have lasted. Um, they don't know a month from then, two months from then, six months of the year. And as we know, a lot of these, a lot of the impacts are going to be long lasting or the intention would be for them to be long lasting. Um, and many NGOs simply don't have the resources to, to get that data. Um, it's, it's, it's costly it can, and in challenging environments can be logistically uh, nightmarish to try and actually get data that's anything more than what they can get right at the conclusion of, of a program. So we've developed a tool whereby they can do that um, over a distance. And, we've, we, and the way I think we, we do that is incentivizing beneficiaries to remain engaged. So it's an app. It's an app on a phone. Uh, beneficiaries can remain, are incentivized to remain engaged with the NGO using tokens. So we have a tokenized app. Uh, and it's all fueled by the Telus blockchain. Um, so I guess the value proposition to an NGO from us is that we can get you more, better, and longer-term data uh, that's a lot cheaper than you would otherwise be able to get it, and it's verified by blockchain technology. So you're, so it's, our mantra is helping NGOs prove and improve their impact that so can you give an example of like what a specific what a specific program would be or somewhere that 
that would paint a picture of how this would be used, like the kind of maybe the user, the user experience type of thing? Yeah, sure. Um, um, I, th I think the most sort of simple and intuitive example would be for, uh, say, um, uh, short-term medical missions. So after a, 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 disaster, a natural disaster or something, you get uh, um, an outbreak of cholera, say. Um, you'll have a, a team of, of doctors fly in from Canada into Haiti, say, um, deliver medical services and then leave and have no real uh, connection with the community that they were there to help to know two months later if there's been a return of cholera, if, uh, how effective the, the intervention was. Um, and that would be a prime example of where Havuda is, is going to enable them to keep uh, connected with the beneficiaries, and the beneficiaries incentivized to also stay connected, to keep them abreast of, of how successful that mission was. Not other things, are, a lot around education, so the delivery of um, uh, uh, hygiene and sanitation, uh, good practice in hygiene and sanitation, for example. And this was actually a big one recently in, in Southeast Asia. So you'll have an NGO, a team, uh, an NGO go to a community and spend a few days with them, uh, teaching them about good practice in hygiene and sanitation, do a survey at the end of that to see what they what the community understood, what they didn't understand, and then they will report that impact to their donor or to the general public. Uh, but they won't know two months later if anybody remembered those learnings or if they just re or they reverted back to how things were before. Um, so it's really about uh, allowing NGOs to provide. Uh, to prove to themselves and to their donors that their impact, that the impact that they're having is is long term and lasting, and I think that's what everybody wants. In the end, it's just unfeasible. Large, it has been unfeasible in the past to actually do that to to, to get that long term proof of long long term impact. And so what those are. Yeah, yeah the, those are great examples. What's the what's the cell phone usage like in in some of those places? Is and is that like is that the main? I guess the main criteria is they they're going to have to have cell phones to make this to make it happen. We th there is a web app people can use as beneficiaries can use as well. But it, it, it's a great question, and it was actually the first question I asked Fabian. Mm -hmm. How do, do people use cell phones? And Surprise! I mean, we'll be surprised to hear that cell phones in Southeast Asia, cell phone penetration in Southeast Asia is about where it is in some parts of Europe, mm -hmm. uh, Africa. It's rising even in the poorest countries, poorest communities in Africa. Cell phone penetration is rising about 10% per year and has done so for the past five or six years. So it went from something like 10, 15 percent and it's now sitting around 40, 45%. Uh, South Asia, so India, India is lagging a little bit at, at around 25%. And obviously that, you know, we rely on, on people having cell phones and, and smartphones, internet access. So that's a constraint, but it's a constraint that's very quickly disappearing. Mm -hmm. And you, you'll often find that... Um, uh, a lot of people in developing countries, the first paycheck is 
they'll buy a cell phone before they eat mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's the way most people in the developing, in, in developing countries access internet. It's, it's really interesting phenomenon with, uh, with like a lot of the African countries basically skipped PCs and, and skipped the computer revolution. They just kind of waited until cell phones came out and now it's like now they, they leapfrogged and now all of a sudden they are kind of the adopters of internet on telephone, so on phone, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They also, I mean, and there's, there's lots of evidence on that they leapfrogged, they're leapfrogging banking as well. Yeah. You know, banking services were unavailable. <clears throat> People went to, sell, to, to mobile phones. Mm -hmm. um, so that leapfrogging effect is, is real and it's fast. It's mm -hmm. really fast. And also you do, we are talking about fairly young-ish populations in a lot of developing countries. So, you know, it's even, the growth is, is, is faster than, um, than, than it even is, you know, for us. We've, we've a, a prime example is Myanmar, which is, you know, has just uh, come out of uh, uh, 30 odd years of military dictatorship. They have a surging cell phone. Basically everyone owns a cell phone. You, you can buy a cell phone for under a hundred bucks, a Chinese made smartphone for less than a hundred bucks. Everyone's got one. There's no data. Um, Internet services are reasonably good, not great, but, but good enough. Um, there's 60 million people with cell phones and there's absolutely no data at all because no one's been in there for, for 40 years, you know? So yeah, that, that, what, what I thought and imagined would be a constraint to, to growth for us is, is actually, it's not. And what do you mean by no data? Like they don't have data service or they don't have to pay for data? So data, data in the NGO sense. Oh, I okay. Mean, oh, no. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. How many, how, how many kids, how, how many children are there? How many children uh, have suffered from malnutrition? Nobody knows because we just haven't been there. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, talking about that, uh, you know, I know you have the monitor program. So the smartphone app where uh, people in health programs can update daily so that, resources can be deployed and uh, it sounds like one of the not only are you going to get something specific like cholera I, I would think and over time you can say oh how what kind of impact do we have fixing this specific disease but also um, kind of disease agnostic I think as you guys put it on your website yes. but um, but you can so you can take more of a holistic approach um, yeah so I think yeah. that's a that's a pretty cool concept like a little bit bigger picture um that you're talking about teaching educating and bringing some education in there about um how diseases are transferred and, and cleanliness and things like that so um yeah what's what's your what what's that look like what's a holistic approach look like what, what does that look like for you guys the impact of internet and smartphone penetration is Probably something that we, and we've looked at a lot of data points and stuff, and I don't think we quite understand how significant it can potentially be. Um, so we, we have the, the tracer and the monitor programs. Um, as an example, most people who contract Ebola contract it from either in hospital or from someone on their way to hospital with it. Hmm. That's, how you, that's how most people contract it. So Havuda is going to allow people to report symptoms from their home w without moving and without 
potentially infecting someone else on, on the way to a hospital or getting it at a hospital. That's just one example of, I, I think there are a lot of kind of known unknowns to use a Rumsfeld ism. Mm-hmm. Um, the, we're not quite sure of the extent. And, and, you know, I don't think it's a, it's a day that we, we, we goes by that we don't get an inquiry of, can we use your app in this way or in this way? Ways that we have, we hadn't even thought of, you know? So what we started off with was it the idea of getting long-term impact data into the hands of NGOs and ultimately to their donors to ensure a flow of funding. And it's grown a little bit into, there are whole areas, whole other areas of application that, that we may not have uh, thought of. And there's probably a whole lot more that, you know, that are yet to, to sort of come across our desks. And Cambodia is a great example of this, malaria dengue. Um, and I, I can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but millions and mil- hundreds of millions of dollars on preventing malaria in Cambodia. And I, for good reason, malaria kills people. Um, there's a dengue ec- epidemic and there's an obesity epidemic in Cambodia and two people last year died of malaria. Maybe we need to be a little bit more holistic about our approach to what diseases we're actually treating or we're actually looking to, to, to resolve, you know? <clears throat> yeah, without data, you're just kind of, uh, you know, attacking the, the ones that are scary <laughs> in some cases. I mean, you know, yeah. the ones that have a, have a, a history as opposed to what's happening right now, possibly. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And data, data's gonna drive all of this a more holistic approach is, is probably going to better serve more people. How do they look at data now? How do they collect it? You, is that the same type of thing where they're kind of when their boots on the ground at the end of the project, that's kind of when they're collecting data or how are they doing it specifically? So the, the donor fund, uh, sorry, the global fund is a, is a donor organization. They, they support NGOs who do the work on the ground. Okay. The NGOs then report the data back to the global fund okay um so the the global fund kind of aggregates i guess that data so they're they're a donor then the people on the the ngos on the ground are the ones uh, who are gathering who are gathering the data it's just it's it's short term it, it's it's immediately post the intervention uh and this is it's 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 what it's one of those things that's long been known as a problem, but how to fix it is, is it's, it's expensive. You, you can fix it, but it's expensive. It's been traditionally quite expensive. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like um, the Havuda is kind of the focusing on the impact, basically recording the impact long-term. Uh, you, there's a lot of talk also, or just, just a, another problem with, the NGO space is um, just the allocation of funds. Is this, is that something you might expand into the, the transparency of where the money goes basically? Is that something you see Havuda expanding into? Is that a use case as well? Uh, so directly the answer is no, but indirectly the answer would be yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately uh, over the long term, donor organizations fund or seek to fund effective NGOs. We can help effective NGOs prove that they're effective okay. and therefore 
generate funds. Um, I, I think that I was explaining to a, um, a, a client the other day that, that um, I don't think ineffective NGOs are going to like us very much because mm -hmm. we do kind of shine a light on, uh, on how impactful people, how effective uh, organizations are. Good NGOs, especially good NGOs who don't have access to, to who, who don't have the profile and don't have access to as much funds as others, is, um, they're going to benefit the most from implementing Havuda. So in terms of directing funds, I think that's, that's um, in the end, that, come, that, that all does feedback into impact anyway. So we will influence that by by helping NGOs get better data, essentially. It's not a direct focus of ours. Yeah, you know, that makes sense though. That 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 seems like a, a more um market-driven approach to get data on what these NGOs are actually doing, how successful they are long term, and then let uh the people giving money direct it better. You know, that, that yeah, seems exactly. like Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. As a, as opposed to trying to go all the way up the supply chain and create transparency and monitor it, you know. So exactly, exactly. We, we did. We were posed with the question um, fairly recently. Why didn't we just create an NGO? And and my answer was, a the last thing the world needs is another NGO begging <laughs> for money. And mm -hmm. b what we want to do is let the people who know what they're doing on the ground do their job and do it well. And better inform them with what their impact is for better or for worse uh and then let 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 the market work out where where the funding goes i, mm -hmm. I think that's that's what um you know that's the value we bring yeah and in giving the data like you're saying to the ngos so that they can then tweak their approach and try to get better numbers and then you know uh that that's that's big as well just if for a specific ngo it's going to help them have better results because they're going to have some data to work off also. So that's great. Yeah. 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 That, that's, a, I mean, that's the, the other side of the coin as well. You know, it's not, it's not supposed to be a punishment. It's not supposed to be a, a shining a light on inefficiency. It, although it does do that, it, it it's, it, our mantra is prove and improve. So we're, we're giving you more data so that you can get more funds, but also with that data, you can tweak your program. As you said, it's mm -hmm. about tweaking, using beneficiary driven data to tweak things in the future and, and, and get better. Mm -hmm. so what's the, what's the NGO scene look like in general? It like, is there um, thousands of NGOs? Is there hundreds of NGOs? How many NGOs are there and, and how many of them are operating efficiently? You think? I guess 35,000 around the world. Um, there's some crazy figures floating around and, and bear in mind an NGO, you know, um, um, uh, a dude with a with a ponytail and a and a and a pipe dream can turn up in Congo and register an NGO, call himself an NGO because he, okay. you know, yeah, he gave someone some food. So we have to be a little bit careful about how we how we classify NGOs. I I'd put the the UN registered NGOs number about thirty five thousand. Um, there are varying sizes. There's um. Yeah, so if I exclude all the kind of crazy figures, um, yeah, because you, by some counts there are there is an NGO for every five people in India, for example. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. There's, there, 
it's a big sector. Um, I, it's the seventh largest economy in the world, if it were its own economy. Oh, wow. It's massive. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that it's, is... It's that's unthinkably large. So, yeah, so bigger picture, I mean, if there was some sort of... Is there any sort of standard for reporting or just um, for results? Is there like any kind of accredited body where people say, oh, these were the results that this NGO got or this is the rating that this NGO has? Is that out there at all? Uh, no. If, you, if you're getting taxpayer funds or you're getting funds from some of the larger donor agencies. So, you know, we're talking Global Fund, Gates Foundation, um, the EU institutions, World Bank, those, those guys, they're going to need um, very thorough and very rigorous reporting. You know, they'll have rigorous reporting requirements. If you're not getting access to institutional funds, if you're, if you're, if you're getting money from the general public, um, the the onus the reporting onus is um is far less rigorous so i don't think i you, you could say there's um particular standards uh that apply to everybody it really depends on what kind of money you're you're whose money you're trying to get you know if mm-hmm. it's institutional money mm-hmm. the standards are higher um and and everyone has their own way of measuring their impact everyone all the donors have different ways of, of assessing those measurements. Um, so, yeah, it, it is hard to kind of define a, any particular global standard um, that, that applies to everyone. We, we've, we've met, uh, we've talked to NGOs who, and, and a lot, a lot, because uh, they just can't afford it. Um, a lot of local, especially smaller NGOs, local NGOs do not, do impact evaluations at all we'd actually and, and we're interested in kind of working with those those smaller organizations as well to to help them out because um you know we, we can we can do that for them in a, in a much more affordable way so what is your what's the what is the strategy as far as market penetration and what what type of ngos is it was your focus going to be on it, at the end of September, we have three three programs of about a couple hundred beneficiaries in each, um, and they're with a lar- two large NGOs, international NGOs. They're French, um, so one's in Vietnam, one's in Thailand, and one's in Cambodia. Um, I also have a couple of meetings with. Um, another few NGOs in Cambodia uh, next week. Uh, one's a local NGO and one is a, a, a major global NGO. Need to be approaching the bigger players. Dan, um, I mean, I, I'm incredibly cognizant of the fact that there are so many incredibly effective local NGOs who have who you will never have heard of, who I would never have heard of, um, that who have no profile, barely any money. They got a, you know a tiny little office with, with a with a fan in the corner and a and a guy on a laptop, um, who do amazing wonderful work, who could not ordinarily afford to be providing impact assessments and hiring consultants to to do all of that sort of stuff, and we want to work with those guys. 
we want to we want to reward effective effective development efforts at whatever scale so yeah we we're taking again i guess a holistic approach we want to uh we want to be inclusive uh we want to be flexible with our pricing so that um so that we can actually capture you know the ngos that don't have enough money to do uh, effective work and and with our help could perhaps open for the funnels of funding <clears throat> yeah it seems like you're really going to be operating on some sort of network effect if you can get a few of these bigger ngos to kind of make a splash then all of a sudden a lot of those small ones come in because the opportunities there with some sort of you know quote-unquote standard where they can compare themselves to these big organizations that are using it um yeah that, that's a that's a cool strategy what what's the, what would be like the strategy for getting the cell phone users to um, input the data like on a daily basis? Like how's your cholera doing? And I know it's incentivized by the token, but what about educating them, getting them to download the app? Where, where's that step come in? Yeah, that 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 will be largely up to the NGOs themselves. Mm -hmm. um, we would expect the onboarding. The ideal way to do it is to onboard during an intervention during a program because then you've got you your beneficiaries are sitting in front of you okay everybody download the app now enter in your details all, all beneficiaries are whitelisted by an ngo first um so get get them downloading the app first do a um do your initial uh questionnaire then right then and there and then you have then you have hopefully an active audience there's there's going to be some loss uh, over time, you know. Um, there'll be some dropouts and people losing phones and, and all that kind of stuff. But we we would I mean, what we're saying to NGOs is is you know we would encourage you to onboard at at the moment um, because that's a hell of, that's a lot easier than trying to find people after the fact. So yeah, onboarding uh, as soon as you can. Um, and then hopefully retaining, having having decent retention of of those beneficiaries. Is it? It's, it's not. It's not. It's not. That, that is one of the difficulties. Is is uh, the onboarding, especially if if the program was six months ago. I mean, that's you know, that that's where it gets hard. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, the NGOs are going to want to do it at the time of. Uh, at the at the time they're there, that makes sense. Yeah. So, is yeah. it will Havuta have a uh, a token that's incentivizing the model, or are they giving? Um, are they using Telos or their own token? The, we have our own uh, Havuta Impact Evaluation tokens. They're called highs. Mm -hmm. um, so beneficiaries earn highs for answering submitting data, answering questions, submitting data. Mm -hmm. um, the highs are not we so. And this is still in flux, but at the moment, the model is that the highs are not, they don't have a dollar, they don't have a nominal dollar value, um, which is, a, it's about not corrupting data with money, essentially. Mm -hmm. So they're worth, they, they, on face value, they're worth zero. Um, so an, the process would be an, an NGO requests highs of us, we will send them from our wallet to theirs. Uh, and as beneficiaries res respond with data to their, to their questions, 
they receive highs in, in, in return for that. They can then convert those highs into uh, incentives. And, uh, you know, at the moment, that's again up to, we're trying to kind of work out a way where Havuda can offer incentives as well. Um, and all this is in flux. It could change a, a year from now. But at the moment, um, we have NGOs who are offering incentives in return for a certain number of highs offering in, in incentives. It, it's, you know, a meal somewhere or, or th th those kind of things, little things. It, it's, it's important to, we're going to tread a fairly fine line about um, what money does to, to data because it's, it, it can corrupt it. Yeah, it seems like that. That's a that's a logical model, though. With the NGOs already on the ground providing services, to have them provide something extra, basically to reward people for the for the data. Um, yeah. If yeah. I mean, uh, one one good uh, a thing that I don't know that I've been talking about and we've been thinking about it is that um, if the intervention intervention proved to be unsuccessful, then highs could be converted into a, a second go at it kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Whether that's an incentive enough for the beneficiaries, we're not sure. You know, we're, we're toying with all these different things. And I think in different contexts, it's, it's going to work in different ways. But to be honest, we're probably not best placed to, to work all that out. I think NGOs on the ground, they're really well resourced. They can, they can get in-kind things really easily, usually. Um, and they're going to know the cultural context and, and, and the, the community context, what's going to work, you know, what's going to best incentivize the right, the right answers, the, um, correct, you know, accurate answers, good data. data yeah. Analysis. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's really what it comes down to. That's part of the decentralized uh, revolution is that people act uh, in communities of, 30 people and there's there's that's own environment and economics and uh, barter and all that happens on small levels. If you get, you know, too far away from it and try to try to try to give incentives, it gets, it's harder to give incentives from further away. So I think you're probably right on with yeah. put just that's that NGOs are going to have to be creative and come up with that, but they're the perfect people to do it. Um, yeah. Sounds yeah. like, yeah. You phrase that better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> Um, where do you, uh, where do you see this going for, um, you know, let's say 10 or 20 years down the road, what do you think the whole, the whole industry looks like? What do you think the NGO scene could look like if, if, if these incentive models start working? I, I am a, a major believer in the power of decentralization and in the inevitability of decentralization and the transparency that comes with that and the, the whole don't trust verify movement. So what I would like to see is that, and you know, you've seen studies, we've all, we've all read that uh, trust, public trust in, in institutions, banks, governments, as well as charities and NGOs is, it's falling, it's falling fast. And I don't think that reverses. So the, the don't trust verify model, I, I, I believe is, is, that's the future and not just in, in the development sector, but everywhere. Um, so that's the direction I see everyone headed. And I, and I, I just think that it's, um, 
the, the development sector in particular, because it's so dispersed and it's so opaque and we're not really sure where our money goes sometimes. And we don't, we, we have to just take people on their word that, you know, what they're doing with, 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 with donations. Um, it's challenging. They're working in challenging environments. It's global. I think it's a, it's a perfect sector to be, to be genuinely decentralized in, in particular when it, when it comes to how do we, how we measure impact. So that, that's how I would, that's how I would like to see things occur. There's going to be some short term resistance, you know, I mean, people are resistant to change and all that sort of stuff. But I think, um, you know, in the end, if we're all held to held to higher levels of, uh, accountability and that forces us to improve what we do and get better um then everybody wins you know so and i think that's a that's a interesting point kind of the idea that uh in developing places maybe this is the where the the best spot for a for a decentralization movement is because sometimes it's easier to build from kind of the ground up from scratch instead of taking um you know instead of having these big monolith institutions and trying to then unbuild and decentralize them. You know, this is, this is a good example of a place where uh, the technology can leapfrog in the same way that uh, the personal computer was leapfrogged by cell phones in a place like Africa. Um, You know, this is, this is, this may be another good example of kind of how that, how that ends up working. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I mean, the future is Starting. I think that uh, it's impossible to predict exactly how this is all going to play out, right? But um, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a major believer in in the in distributed ledger technology to to drive decentralized information sharing, and, and I, I um, it's kind of exciting to think about the possibilities that that could bring to mm-hmm. to everybody, including the 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 you know. The poorest two billion people on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you you specifically, Havuda is operating in a, a really cool, impactful area. A lot of blockchain tech is you know is dealing with a with things that aren't quite as that aren't going to have such a huge impact. This is something that you can see if there were if there's some sort of network effect. If 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 there's a way to get adoption and NGOs kind of on this, incentivized to use something like this, it. it it can, it can have a massive impact. I mean, it can save lives. It can feed people. It can make people healthy. I mean, that's a, that's a really cool area to be building a company. And I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm excited for that. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah. Thanks man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, we are, we're kind of, kind of happy with, with, uh, what we've created. We're only, we're only 10% there, you know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, there's a lot more building to do, but, but, um, no, we're, we're, we're happy with what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So what's the what's the next step for you guys? Where like kind of where are you at right now, and what's the next three to six months look like? Yeah, uh, it's it's about it's about penetration. It's about uh, making sure people know who we are and what we can do. Um, a lot of it is going to be uh, communicating uh, the the misconceptions about you, know, you say blockchain to somebody and they they think of um crypto scams and and you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that, that's the, just the first thing that comes to people's heads so i i think a lot of the the, the short-term uh challenge 
for for us is to to breach those misconceptions and you know to say to people you don't have to be in control of everything for you, your data to be valid you bring yourself to let go a little bit of control and 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 don't ask people to trust so much be open to being verified publicly um so there, there's some walls there's some challenges you know there's going to be some um misfirings i guess but i think yeah it's really uh getting penetration by communicating the benefits and dispelling the the misconceptions i guess it would, would be that specifically my focus for the next six months fantastic well this is a, an exciting project the telos um community i know has been really excited about this so it'll be you know I'm, I'm sure people will be excited to hear this and get kind of a deep dive into what you guys what the team's all about so um as we start to wind down to here, do you have any final thoughts, anything, you, any messages you'd like to get out there? And then where can people uh, find you? What's the best place to contact you on the uh, interwebs? On the interwebs, we are at <laughs> Havuda.com. Havuda.com. Um, and yeah, as a final thought, I, I, I think it's a shout out to the Talos community. We've been, so Fabian, my co-founder, is not, savvy with oh i shouldn't say savvy <laughs> he's okay with the blockchain it's not his world mm -hmm. um, i'm a little more uh, familiar with it he he joined the telegram group a few days ago and couldn't just couldn't believe the uh, the the just the enthusiasm and the and, and you know the welcome that we kind of got from the telus community so i i think i'd, I'd i kind of like to end it by thanking the Telos Foundation, Douglas, yourself, everybody for the uh, just the, I mean, the generosity of enthusiasm that we've we've received has been um, it's been quite overwhelming and very humbling to be honest. Yeah, well, that's a that's a great one to end on, and um, this is the Telos podcast. And shout out to the community, thank you guys, and uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you today, Paul. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. The money is not the prime asset in life. Time is.